what I want to talk about tonight, the title is from a, a line in one of the suttas that I really liked, where the Buddha talked about the tides of conceiving, where he says, when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over a person, he is called a sage at peace. And it just really felt to me, I could just feel that sense of conceiving, conceiving all the time, how exhausting it is. It does wash over like a tide. And when it's not clung to, one really does feel at peace. He defines conceiving as I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be or I shall not be or I shall be possessed of form or I shall not be possessed of form and on and on ad nauseum. You get the idea. That's conceiving, the tides of conceiving. And to talk about, I want to pick up on a couple of topics in Sylvia's multi-topic talk last night, um, the topic of the nature of insight, as well as that um, how we either can stop and see or we can sit and tell ourselves stories, which is basically the tides of conceiving. So how do we see through, stop clinging to, these tides of conceiving. It's not about getting in a fight with thought, I am, I am not this, and trying to stop that. That's just more of the same. But how do we make that shift that recognizes reality in a whole different way? That's what takes us into the nature of insight, as Sylvia was talking about it last night, an intuitive sense, rather than a different way of thinking it's a whole different way of perceiving. You know, insight is just something that arises from who knows where. And the way it seems to work, or the effect it seems to have, is that we're suddenly perceiving our experience in a different way. It's not necessarily that the situation has changed, but the way that we perceive and understand the situation may have changed radically. The best metaphor I can know for this, and I think it's really quite apt, is those magic eye graphic designs. You know, those they come in books where it's two or three different colors of um, graphics that don't have any particular design, and the kind of little heart on the eye. And if you hold them and look at them long enough so that your gaze relaxes, steady gaze but relaxed, you can't be looking for something but just relaxed, then the tendency of the eyes to grasp onto each of the graphic symbols sort of relaxes and suddenly a a 3D looking image, you know, springs out from the middle of that page, two guys playing hockey or a rocket ship or dinosaurs or whatever the heck it is. And it's really clear. It's the kind of, oh, how could I not have seen this? It's so obviously here. And then when your eyes either get tired or you start looking too too hard again, it goes away and the graphics are back. That's, uh, I think, a really good metaphor for how insight works, how our perception shifts. Those, the 3D picture, it's always there, isn't it, within somehow hidden within the multicolored graphics. It's not that when your eyes 
relaxed, something that wasn't there sprang out. It was already there. The perception just shifted. So it doesn't, and it doesn't mean that the original flat graphics with no particular picture is false either. They're both true. They're both part of that particular experience. You know what I mean? So once we've seen the two guys playing hockey, even when we're not seeing it again, we're only seeing the flatness, we know that is also part of it. And we don't have to get upset if someone comes and says, no, I don't believe you. We don't have to get upset about it. I mean, we know it's true, you know. But you can't give anyone else that experience either. You know, all you can do is say, well, it's really true. And if you relax or cross your eyes or hold it to your nose or whatever works for you, maybe you can see it. And maybe they can and maybe they can't. We can't affect it, you know. It's a little like the Buddha saying, you know, I can show you the path, but I can't walk it for you. This is really what is possible, but you have to try and see for yourself. So to me, insight is really like that. It, we learn to recognize the same situation in a different way. And even though that particular new way of recognizing may not last, have you noticed that? It may not last. It's not like everything's altered solidly forever. The knowing of that new way or different way of perceiving it affects the mind stream. It has an effect on how we understand and how we respond to similar situations in the future. And it also makes it a little bit easier to perceive in this other way from time to time, although not totally in our control. exerts an influence. And I know... We've all had experiences like this or we wouldn't still be here plowing along. And it can be quite simple. The experience of having a really strong pain in your knee and it's solid and it's solid and you hate it and you just can't bear another sitting with it and what are they talking about? That pain is just sensations. It's clearly killing you. And suddenly there's a sitting where something in the mind or heart lets go and it's clearly intense vibrating sensations, but the sense of it as being pain or my pain or a problem or solid is just gone, gone. Just vibrating intensities, points of sensation, and it's really just like that for a while. Then it goes back. The hockey players disappear and we're back to just the solid interlocking graphics. You know, where did they go? Where did they go? I want the points of intense non-personal sensation back, you know. But of course, as we know, clinging makes it impossible. But knowing that that was an experience, that that was a different perception of the same experience, changes something. Somewhere in our mind stream, in the way that we approach our physical experience, there's knowing that it can be different. It's not only one way. So there's a sense of, it's not that either one is the only truth, you know. Sometimes our bodies feel solid. 
And if I go around saying, I know it's nothing but arising and passing momentary sensations, just like bubbles arising and passing in emptiness. I mean, it's been like that sometimes. It certainly doesn't feel like that right now. (laughs) Not in the least. It doesn't make that other's not true, and it doesn't mean this isn't true. They're just different perceptions. So what starts to happen in the way that we understand experience in the world, our mind, our body, all the five skandhas in practice, is rather than saying this way that I'm used to, solidity of body, for example, is false. And what's really true is points of sensation in the night sky. That's just letting go of one clinging and moving into another clinging. It's going to be just as much suffering after a while. Rather, is saying, oh, sometimes the perception's like this, sometimes the perception's like that. And maybe that's not the only way sometimes the perception is. Maybe I have no clue, and maybe I never will. But we hate that. We want to have a clue. We want to know what it's like. And that's where we get into trouble wanting to know and holding on to our descriptions of reality because somehow it seems that's safer or more solid or more comfortable or basically in control, right? Isn't that what it all comes down to? If I really can say and name and describe how it is, I've got it under control. Too bad it doesn't work. So I want to just remind you, read again a quotation from Sayada Ujjanika that I mentioned in one of my earlier talks. Because the whole point of insight practice, of course, is these insights, which is rather than something that we get or hold on to, just a shift of perception. So Ujjanika said that we practice Vipassana in order to live in happiness, to be rid of suffering. That suffering arises due to the suffering mental states we get involved in. That our suffering mental states arise because of Sakaya Ditti, because of our personality view belief, our clinging to our idea of our personality. And that the Sakaya Ditti arises because we have a mistaken understanding of the nature of our mental and physical experience. So again, we're back to that the point, or a point, the way that mindfulness practice works is by allowing us, moment after moment, to perhaps have a little bit more accurate perception of our mental and physical experience, which can then give rise to maybe an understanding that's a little bit closer to what's really going on than the understandings and descriptions we might be operating under without even knowing it. So let me backtrack a little and start with this a discussion of the um, mental factor of perception itself. In the Buddhist psychology, the word perception is a translation of the Pali word sanya. It's a very specific experience. So you you know that we've talked about, I think Guy was talking about, that there's the sense doors, and when there's a sense object, like there's the eye, there's a sight that arises, there's consciousness of that sight. So when those three happen, that's called sense contact, seeing, basically. 
right? And in a moment of sense contact, arising with it is sanya, or perception. And perception is really a lot based in memory. It's our basic sort of instantaneous recognition, you could say, of what's going on, of what's happening. So with seeing, there might be the perception of a person, for example, you know, a woman or that person I know, you know, the person's name. Or we hear a sound and there's the immediate perception of those, that's the frogs croaking out there. This just pretty much arises on its own. And sometimes, of course, it's accurate. Sometimes we really don't know what the sound is and it might be perception just of not knowing. Sometimes the perception can be completely wrong, you know? We hear a sound and go, oh, that's the frogs croaking, and it's not the frogs croaking at all, it's something else. So that's one thing. There's perception, which may or may not be accurate. And then, as we all know by now, it extremely rarely does it stop at perception. There's perception, and then out of that perception, just like that, there's thoughts, there's descriptions, there's interpretations. And in a moment of a simple perception, like a simple sound of the bell, the thoughts and interpretations and associations can create our whole world, which is useful at times. So about 15 minutes ago, when the bell rang outside, there was just that sound, gong, immediately the perception bell ringing, and the association was the time, it means it's time for the talk, I'm a yogi, it's spirit rock on retreat, it's time to go in and have the talk, you know where you sit, all of that, you know, the whole world springs into existence with the perception of that sound as the bell before the Dhamma talk, right? I mean, luckily it works a lot of the time. We all have a similar associations and interpretations. It's useful. It's not like we want to get rid of that. We'd be a, be a bit of a mess if we got, what's that sound? What do I do now? Who am I? Where am I? What happens? You know, it wouldn't work. <laughs> So it's not like we're trying to throw that out. But it's helpful to see that it's not the absolute reality and truth of what's happening. It's it's an agreed-upon perception and description, right? That's useful when we all know what's happening. So with our mindfulness, what we can begin to see is, first, perception is not always accurate. Based on that inaccurate perception, the descriptions and interpretations and assumptions can get really far afield. And this is where we start to wonder why we're disconnected from things as they are. So, example of perception being inaccurate, distorted. It's colored by, in a moment of perception, that recognition is colored by whatever mental states happen to be arising in the mind and the consciousness at that moment. The base distortion, of course, is ignorance, just not seeing clearly, not recognizing accurately. So hearing a sound we don't really know, have you noticed how our tendency is to make something up? The nearest thing, the closest thing. Or, um, for me, a good metaphor for inaccurate perception due to ignorance is if I take my glasses off and go around my house because I don't see very well with my glasses off. 
and to see how the inaccurate perception then gives rise to mental states, associations, how we feel, and it affects our whole state of being based on something that isn't even true. So if I go around without my glasses on, I really like the house to be clean and tidy. And when I don't have my glasses on and I walk around, I go, oh, everything looks really clean. I don't see any dust. I don't see any dirt. The windows look really clean, which is surprising since I haven't washed them in 10 months. They look really good. And then I'll be reading or something and I'll have my glasses on and walk around to the same room and go, oh my God, (laughs) I didn't see. Look at that. Look at all those spider webs. Look at all that stuff on the floor. And then I'll get really disgruntled, you know, and unhappy. Whereas before I was feeling really spacious and peaceful and in harmony just based on perceptions and what we do with that. If cravings in the mind, have you noticed when you're really desiring something, it looks much more attractive than after you don't want it anymore? Not only just people, but food (laughs) or some idea. It really colors things. Or if there's fear. On a retreat recently, I was in, in Asia, and it was mostly sunny and warm in the days, but... I noticed a couple of days when it was really kind of cloudy and, and uh, a very different atmosphere. And the first day it was like that. I had been in a space where there was a lot of deep fear coming up. And then I went outside to do my walking and it was cloudy. And immediately I, pers- I felt that it was sinister. It felt unsafe. You know, it's, oh, it's so cloudy. It's so dark. It's so sinister. I, you know, I, I don't feel safe walking out here. I could see, oh, wow, that's just the fear completely coloring the perception. Then the next time it was cloudy, I was in a much more peaceful place, and I went outside and I said, oh, it's kind of cozy. It makes, you know, feels like a kind of a blanket, you know, the higher barometric pressure, and it makes all the sounds, of which they were a lot, much more muffled, and this is really pleasant, this is really cozy. We do that a lot, a lot. Now, if we're aware of how the mental states in the mind are coloring the perception and then how the mind is taking that perception and running with it into all the associations and the feelings that grow in it, then that's fine. We can just see that's what's happening. Sort of like seeing, oh yeah, there's these hockey players or there's not. When we don't realize that's what's happening, which is when we're telling ourselves the stories and really our energy is caught in those stories, that's when we really start suffering because mostly we end up trying to fix it or manipulate things to keep it the way we like it when it's not even that way to begin with. We're just making it up. That's my favorite line of Joseph Goldstein's. We're making it all up. Moment after moment, really quite literally, we're making it all up. Sometimes it's quite useful. But when we're really suffering, it's helpful to know that we're making it up. Because if we can start to see through how we're making it up, we don't have to keep believing it. And then we don't have to keep suffering from a story that we're making up based 50% of the time. I haven't done a research paper that is really 50%. I'm making that up too. (laughs) Based 50% of the time on a perception that isn't even accurate to begin with. It's really a trip when we start to look at it this way. This particular pattern, there's a great word for it in the Pali, Papancha, one of my favorites. This is the definition of it. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates. 
One complicates with associations, with memories, with ideas, etc. And then this complication, this proliferation, becomes notions that then assail and overwhelm a person. Just based on the complications of thinking about any particular perception of sense experience. The Dalai Lama said once that all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's quite a statement. All of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. As I said, even having a perception and using it to describe the world doesn't have to be a problem. It's useful. Even having a perception that we, and a description that we're not sure if it's accurate, that's okay. The problem is only when we're clinging to, identified with that, that perception, that description, that interpretation, and mostly we don't know. So when we think this is true, this is how it is, that's a clue that we're, we're grasping to that or identifying with it. And that's when we start to get into conflict with ourselves, with others. Because when, once we're locked into, this is what that sound is, this is what this sensation means, this is what's happening, it's as if our awareness snaps shut. We tend, or can tend, out of, you know, kind of solidifying around this description of the world or ourselves or whatever, not to even notice perceptions or experiences that go against the particular description we have. It's actually, I find, amazing how the mind can do that. Just completely discount perceptions that don't fit in to our description, even when our description's a suffering one. So on retreats, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It happens to me sometime. Those of you who've been here two weeks, by now, I know even in the silence, you kind of have a sense of who everyone is by the way they walk or the feel of them or you kind of know people's routines. You always run into the same person at a certain place. And have you ever had it happen, as I have, say in the dining room of, of the Insight Meditation Society, the dining room's a bit bigger, where I'll be sitting down eating, deep in treat, someone comes and sits near me. I don't look up. I'm just really being a good yogi. I'm not, you know, you're dying to look, but you don't look. But you know who it is anyway. You can feel, you know, and how they sit and how they move, and so you know who it is. And from that perception of who it is, whatever associations go with it, just like that, they're there. You like the person, all those things. You don't like the person, all those things. They're eating like a slob, all those things, you know. And you just know it. So I remember one time I was deep in that, noting, 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 right? <laughs> but, but it's all going on. There's not even a flicker of a doubt that I know what's happening. Until I looked up and way at the far end, the person who I knew was sitting next to me happened to walk by. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> and everything just comes crashing down. I watched the mind's tendency to go, well, that can't be them because they're here. <laughs> I love that because it just makes the whole house of cards fall down. And just for a moment, I'm in that space of don't know. Just open to be present without having to know everything, without assuming already, before I've even met the moment. There's a, a 
German joke, a German friend told me. They have, uh, you know, sometimes at night, I guess if someone's out driving, and I probably had a few too many beers, and the tenants can tend to get onto the Autobahn, like the freeway. You know, you enter the wrong exit, and you're going in the wrong direction on the freeway at night. And in Germany, that means fast in the wrong direction on the freeway at night. And they call it, translates as ghost driver, a ghost driver. And when there's a ghost driver going the wrong way, sometimes it'll come on the radio, you know, ghost driver at this location on the Autobahn between these two cities. And <laughs> so the joke my friend told me is that the, the ghost driver, the person driving, is listening to the radio, hearing there's a ghost driver on the Autobahn. He goes, one ghost driver? There are many. <laughs> <laughs> we so hold on to our perception we just don't even question it you know they're all going the wrong way because I'm right no question about it <laughs> so when we're grasping like that it's Freezes, it freezes perception. It really solidifies our thoughts. This is when thoughts become so solid, so real, and we're really suffering from a thought because we really solidified our perception and our description at that point. It's basically clinging. When there's just that shift, oh, it can't be this person because there they are, in that moment of everything is open, to be perceived, to be experienced in a different way, then in that moment of not knowing, there's not really conflict, you know? It's not a problem. It, it opens us up to that moment of insight where we can really just let a different way of being, of understanding, of perceiving come in. When we're so locked into how we think it is, there's no room for letting go for that shift to come in. So it's not, that, it's not that thoughts are a problem. You know, thoughts are really useful. Descriptions are really useful. We use it all the time. There's nothing wrong with thoughts. It's just learning to understand that they're simply tools and they are rarely accurate descriptions of ultimate reality. And as long as we know they're tools, There's always that possibility that our description, our interpretation, isn't the only one, or even the only right, accurate one. Just that possibility that there's another way. This is Ajahn Chah. He says, um, talking about how we use thoughts to construct reality, our idea of reality. He says, appearances are determined into existence. Why must we determine them? Because they don't intrinsically exist. For example, suppose somebody wants to make a marker. They take a piece of wood or a rock, you place it on the ground, and you call it a marker. Actually, it's not a marker. There isn't any marker. That's why we determine it into existence, right? You put it there, call it a marker, now it's a marker. And he says, in the same way we determine cities, we determine people, we determine cattle, we determine everything. Why must we determine these things? Because nothing originally, intrinsically exists as that. It's our way of using thought 
to determine it into reality, all our concepts. Understanding that these things are simply determinations, including people, including cities, understanding that they're simply determinations, you can be at peace. It's not a problem. It's useful. But if you believe that the person, the being, the mind, the theirs, and so on, are intrinsic self-existing realities, then you laugh and cry over them. Then there are the proliferations of conditioning factors. If we take such things to be ours, there will always be suffering. This is Michaditi, wrong view. But when we stop clinging to them, there's peace. They don't have to go away. We just realize it's a determination. It's not how it ultimately actually is. And in that realization, there can be peace. So in my experience, personally, I feel that I found that it's really that that search of the heart, the mind, that wants some kind of resting place, some place where it doesn't like hanging out in that don't know, you know, indetermined. This isn't possibly the only way. It wants some sense of this is how it is. I know how it is. Don't tell me otherwise, you know. And I feel secure and safe, somehow at ease, even though that's the source of so much conflict and suffering. So I want to talk a little bit about this selective perception because it's really amazing to me how once the mind has landed on this is how it is, this description, this is a marker, and this marks the boundary you know, between my property and yours, and if you move it over two feet, big trouble moving that stone from here to there. Huge conflict. So how we don't notice or accept conflicting perceptions can really bring us into conflict with ourselves and with others. For example, I remember in politics years ago, remember Nixon way back in the 70s, and he was, you know, the worst politician ever. And I can't remember what, but I remember hearing something really positive about him, something really good he'd done. And I saw my mind... I was like, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> there can't be anything good about Nixon because he's in this category in my mind. And it's too confusing to have it open that maybe he's this real jerk in this way, but there's these really beautiful things. You know, the mind doesn't like hanging out like that. We hold fast. We don't want to let go of our solid worldview. So one great place to notice this since you're here on retreat is to notice how your perceptions of what's happening in a particular sitting in your meditation practice or in a particular walking. Notice the perception, how you interpret it, how what emotions and reactions and self-descriptions come out of that interpretation and are colored by whatever mood happens to be in your mind at the moment. And so how the, how the view of what good practice good practice is, gets really locked in and how much conflict we can get into with our own experience just from holding to that description, that view of good practice. We're in, teachers are in a really uh, 
fortunate position in getting to hear so many different people because it's so obvious how we each just make it up, usually to our own detriment. Usually good practice is something other than is happening in my experience right now. But we'll just can have like a, a string of people and one person will come in, you know, and say, well, my practice is no good because I can't stay with anything, you know. As soon as I feel a sensation, something else happens. As soon as I notice a thought, it goes away because I have no concentration. I can't stay with the thoughts, you know. And we'll say, well, could it be that things are coming and going quickly and that's impermanence? No, it couldn't be. I have no concentration. <laughs> the next person comes in, you know, and they're seeing that they're just with the breath and it's very peaceful and very soft and very present. They're saying, but you guys are talking about choiceless awareness and I should be able to open to all things coming and going and that's not happening. It's just the breath and it's just really peaceful and it's just really quiet and it just shows that I'm dull and I don't really have insight into impermanence, you know? And all that stuff we've said, the next person wants a lot of emotions, you know, because they're peaceful. Then the person having a lot of emotions thinks that's a waste, it's not about opening to emotions, it's about being peaceful and on and on. And... All of it's stuff probably that, that's been set up here or that you've read or in response to questions. All of it. So notice how your mind will tend to pick out the one, usually that will cause us the most trouble, the one that's proved, because we tend to have the overview of I'm not good enough. If you have the overview of I'm really the best, then you'll pick out the one that confirms exactly what's happening to you and ignore the others. And that happens too, you know. I'm having some kind of energy release and that's the most important thing. Everything else is ignored. We all do. It's amazing. Once I was teaching a retreat many years ago and I I was still sitting in a chair then as I do now and well into the retreat, like the fifth or sixth day, someone came for an interview and it was her first retreat and she said, you know, I've been in so much agony sitting on the sofa, you know, and a middle-aged woman. My body isn't used to sitting cross-legged. She was just in agony for days. That's all her sittings were about, the agony and berating herself that she couldn't do it right. And she said, luckily it was before the interview, she said, but you know what, just today I looked up and I said, oh, Carol's sitting in a chair. Maybe it's possible to meditate sitting in a chair. Now, we had said that. We never said, did any of us ever say, you have to sit cross-legged on a zafu or you're not meditating correctly? And we didn't say it then either. Five days of not being able to let in that perception because of the mind saying the only way to do it right is to sit on a zafu cross-legged. You know? It's amazing what we can do. So notice how you do it with your practice. Selective perception, filtered through the mental state and memory, what you remember, what you don't remember, and how we suffer from trying to make our experience match or stay with the description we've basically essentially made up. Another place that we do this, and this is... It's very subtle at the same time that it's so grossly obvious. It's amazing we, we miss it. But then it's also very subtle because it's happening so fast. Is in the whole, the whole uh, realm of Sakaya Ditti, of personality view. Personality view being 
there's not one solid steady state thing, but our basic beliefs and descriptions about ourselves, either our personality traits, the way we define ourselves, the way we relate to certain moods and habits of mind, our view of ourselves, our memories, for example. So familiar, so unnoticed, but it's really the way, the veil through which we filter a lot of perceptions. A lot of people have been mentioning this in interviews, not in these words exactly, but seeing, for example, um, how maybe we knew it before intellectually, but noticing it more moment to moment as it's arising, how maybe somewhere way, way back in childhood or infancy, there was some perception of great neediness or of somehow doing something that made mother's love go away and perceiving it as I'm completely unlovable or somehow it's my fault and I have to make parents happy. You know, whatever, all our stories, which in some way are both trite when you say it, but really very profound and suffering causing in our lives. But really seeing how based on whatever perception, maybe back in infancy, that perception and that interpretation, I have to do X, Y, and Z to make the world safe for me to live in, to get love from my parents, or have to make myself invisible not to you know, get anger coming from my parents, whatever it is. It might be based on an accurate perception at that time. That's not the point. That particular perception and the descriptions, the interpretations, the sense of self that comes out of it, then continues to become so uh, ingrained, really so identified with, so clung to, that through the veil of it, we don't even see it, that becomes the way that we respond to many, many, many situations in our life, up to and including now, when it's not really applicable at all. Well, a lot of us know this from therapy, and we wonder, well, why did that perception then why has it stayed so solid, you know? It's not like as if I'm carrying around something on my back, you know, that I have to chip away at. But what we start to see through the practice here is that simply without recognizing that particular clung-to description, we're simply recreating those conditions moment to moment by the way we respond to situations. So, for example, another if I feel that people... Somehow I grew up feeling that people were always pulling on me, you know, and people were always needing me, and I somehow had to protect myself. Then in some really minor situation, even here, where nobody's needing anything, but we just see someone coming toward us, and instinctively we turn away and go, oh, don't let them look at me, they're needing something from me, you know, and we go off and we've shrunk away into ourselves, and there's a sense of separation. Just something so quick as that, and relatively minor, right? And then we start saying, I feel so separate, I feel so isolated, I feel so alone. It's Sakaya Ditti. It's not that we even have to get rid of that, but simply recognizing how in that moment, that interpretation of the perception, say, I'm making this very simple, of someone coming towards me, oh, they're going to need something. Total interpretation. We don't know. Based on the view we don't even recognize that we're clinging to, and we pull back. All we have to do is be aware of that whole process without clinging to it, without assuming it's an accurate description, and without 
clinging to it is also hating it is also clinging to it you know so saying this is really bad i have to change it i have to be open hearted loving and kind i will go toward whoever comes near me you know i will offer them you know that's just more of the same only turned around in the other direction this is what's so great about the shift of perception of insight you don't have to unpack it all we just have to see through it thoughts are fine just because a thought arises we don't have to make it so solid we don't have to make it a solid reality we don't have to fight it we just can see oh this is the perception this is the interpretation this is sakaya ditti anxiety feels like this fear of being needed feels like this loneliness feels like this that's all i mean it's a lot but that's all it's a shift of perception not tearing everything apart and starting over just oh yeah maybe this isn't the only description of the world that's possible it really is quite amazing this is from bankai he's a, a japanese zen master in the 1600s i hope this makes sense it makes sense to me but sometimes i'm he's talking basically about how our problem with thoughts our problem of coming into conflict in regards to our thoughts is that uh we have so much preference for ourselves he says you know if you didn't uh if you didn't have this preference for yourself there wouldn't be any illusions so if two people next to you were quarreling you can just listen to it and be quite balanced about it we don't get all drawn in or upset about it but as soon as we're one of the people quarreling it takes on a whole another level of intensity and seriousness so he's basically saying all of our thoughts are as if two other people are quarreling or having some great discussion we don't have to meet them any more than that and he says even when you know memories things about your past reflections of your past and images those will arise you know that's just normal but they these thoughts don't really have a real substance so when they arise just let them arise you don't have to make them stop but if they do stop let them stop and either way you don't have to pay any attention to them can we stand that oh all these thoughts and memories and i'm like this and i'm like that and this happened because and just don't pay any attention to them don't try to stop them don't try to keep them going don't pay any attention just leave them alone and then all these illusions don't appear and since there are no illusions when you don't take note of the reflecting images while these images these memories are reflected in the mind it's just the same as if they weren't reflected in the mind you get what he means they can be there or not it's just the same a thousand thoughts may arise and it's just the same as though they haven't they won't give you a bit of trouble you won't have to you don't have any thoughts that you need to clear from your mind you don't have to cut them off they can arise or not arise it doesn't make any difference can we imagine that that's just a thought is just passing by like a sound it just doesn't have to make any difference they're only so solid when there's this clutching this grasping of interpretation description and identity around them now i'm not saying that's easy but that's our whole practice 
How do we cut through that? Back to the absolute simplicity of sati, of mindfulness, of what Ajahn Buddha Dasa calls sati panya. Sati is mindfulness, panya is wisdom. At the moment of sense contact, at the sense doors. It's another way that sense restraint, which was brought up this morning, is talked about sometimes. Not the sense restraint that means you never look around or you don't go out looking for distraction. That's one meaning of it. But sense restraint in terms of bringing mindfulness wisdom, clear seeing, the simplicity of presence to that moment of sense contact, to the moment of perception. Just noticing what's happening as it is, sound, the perception bell, and that's enough. Even if a thought comes, oh, that bell means blah dee blah blah thinking. You know it's a thought. You don't have to stop it. But that's all. Not having to create whole worlds around it. Not having to believe it. Not having to do anything. It's like so simple. I don't know. We just can't stand it somehow. But it's really this, this is um, this famous sutta called the Sutta Tabahiya, where someone came to the Buddha begging him to just quickly tell him basically what he didn't know, so he could become an arhat, completely enlightened. He was begging the Buddha, and the Buddha is saying, I'm going on alms round now, I'll tell you later, this is not the right time. And he was very impatient, said, no, you've got to tell me, you've got to tell me now, now, you've got to tell me. And this is Bahia, and the Buddha said, later, I'm you know, going to get my food, I'll tell you later. And Three times Bahia begged the Buddha, and so classically, in the third time, the Buddha would acquiesce, unless it was something he would never agree to. So he said, okay, I'll just give you this one little stanza. And it's this famous stanza where he says, in the scene is only the scene. You've heard this. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the cognized, there's only the cognized. In the sensed, there's only the sensed. That is all. In other words, you hear the sound. That's it. All the rest is extra. Papancha, the notions that assail and overwhelm a person, complications, completely extra. It's so simple, but we're so unused to it that we really have to practice. Because it's so quick, isn't it? From one sound, one thought. A thought's just another sense experience, just like a sound or a smell or a taste. It's so quick from the sense contact to getting lost in all that proliferation that we just have to learn to come back again, come back again to the simplicity of that sense contact. And then the moment after moment, the continuity is what starts to really show us that what we thought were accurate descriptions and interpretations are actually not steady state at all constantly changing. So these interpretations about ourself, for example, the sense of the solidity of me, which is what Sakaya Ditti is based on. If we didn't have some sense of me being here, we wouldn't be interpreting all experience in terms of what it means about my personality. But when we're willing to just stay that simple, at the point of sense contact, bringing mindfulness is the presence Wisdom, the panya, is just that not going off into interpretation, just staying here. 
moment after moment, the continuity between the sitting and the walking and the movements through the day, the continuity is what begins to reveal the discontinuity of all our interpretations of reality. None of it really holds up for very long if we stay steady. So again, I'm making this very pretty simple examples, but just look in your own experience. The sense of self and our sense of personality view who we are. We all have a kind of basic one, you know. But say you're one, you happen to be walking and your feeling is going really well. You're focused, it feels good. That's, let's face it, that's what going really well usually means. It feels good. Um, so for whatever reason, it feels good. And someone comes by that you had been previously comparing yourself to in a bad way. And they're, they're going in a hurry and they go into the dorm. But it's just the beginning of the walking and you think, huh, they're goofing off. And I'm really doing it, you know. And from that feeling good, that perception which was basically seeing, the comparing of me and them, the whole story about what they're doing when actually we don't have a clue what they're doing, and all our sense of feeling good, what comes into that in our selective perception will be all our memories of when we were great, all our you know, projections into the future of how great we're going to be, how good we felt in the past, how good we'll feel in the future. And that feels like me, really solid. And then it could be five minutes later, two seconds later, or the next walking period, and it doesn't feel good anymore. You know, in fact, it feels really lousy. And you're thinking a lot, and somehow you go into the dorm. And then you realize that that person who you thought was goofing off went into the dorm because they're actually sitting much longer in their room. They're actually sitting three hours at a time in their room. (laughs) While you're the one who's schlepping along, not even able to lift your foot and feel two feet in a row. You know, And then the whole thing switches. The only memories that seem at all real are all the times you screwed up. And if you remember those times that you were so great from the last walking, well, that's baloney, that was a fluke, that doesn't count. This is really the heart of who I am, this loser, you know. And not only that, I project onto other people my loserness, you know, and I'm going around making everybody else bad and just, and that's really me, that's true. That's an accurate perception based on real memories. And it's solid, solid thought. And neither of them. And and it feels like continuous me somehow. I don't know how we overlook the fact that it's completely different stories and completely different moments. We go, yeah, that's continuous me. I'm just one solid. This is what I'm like. And we do this all day. And what's amazing is we can take any sense contact, any sense contact, And do that. You hear the frogs. You can make up the whole story of your life. Back to summer camp in the third grade and how everyone was mean to you and those frogs croaking by the lake and they almost, you know, on and on. Or the reverse. Play with it. I used to do this on retreat. I'd do it with crickets because crickets brings up a certain nostalgic thing when I'm not paying attention. I'd get into a whole story. The crickets, it's so sad. The fall is coming. The ending of all life. I could die in this room. No one would know for three days. (laughs) And all the moods that go with it and the solid sense of me. Really. And I caught it one time. I said, okay, let's just change it. And I thought, really tune into the sound of the crickets and go, isn't that beautiful? So present, so immediate. You know, my mind's going, yeah, right. So present in nature and within about two seconds the 
relevant feelings to that started to come. It was amazing. A sense of happiness, a sense of oneness with nature. I'm so lucky to have this time to practice. It was just as real as the one before. This was within a a two-minute period. They were both equally real or equally unreal, equally having anything to do with who I am, which is like nothing, you know. We're making it all up, literally. So just notice how any sense con, a sound, a smell, somebody slurping their soup next to you can immediately become the whole story of your life. Me, 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 what it means about me and all the past and the future and selective perception. It's totally amazing. If we can just watch that without having to then jump into I'm so stupid, I'm so wrong, I'm so unenlightened, and you know, that's just another one. You just sit back and watch and go, wow, wow, this is really amazing. And we move into the space of awareness rather than being gripped by the reactions and interpretations in the story, and it stops really being a problem. It really stops being a problem. It's so simple. Oh, hearing, slurping, that's all. Unpleasant, pleasant, whatever. We don't have to make up anything about it. We don't have to create a whole world of thought. It's not that we have to get rid of our personality view. It's not that we have to somehow figure out a way to think about there being no intrinsic, unchanging self-fear and think our way out of it. We just have to step outside of the box. Oh, personality view is like this. Nothing changes but our whole perception changes. There's really this sense of peace that just arises from not getting so involved in the papancha, in the proliferations. Just the silence. The Buddha said once that the end of papancha is the end of conflict. And it's really true. My last retreat, I was sitting for a few weeks that line kept going through my mind because I was just seeing how, you know, when the mind was in a state of, of seeing impermanence and loss, like that with the weather, I go out in a cloudy day is completely oppressive and, and scary. And I could see the mind creating that, although one still feels it. And then I remember one, you can do that with anything, right? I remember one day I went outside, I was pretty focused, pretty concentrated and calm, and there were two butterflies just playing together. And it was as if I could see, without, it, without the thoughts actually arising, I could sense all the stories the mind could go into, both on the beautiful side and on the side of everything's dying anyway, and you know, just everywhere the mind could go with that. But it didn't. It just didn't. And it was a sense of just seeing, seeing, and silence. Just nothing else needed to arise around it. And I, I still remember it because it was such a tangible experience of peace. No big deal. Just the peace of not having to create a self-story about every little thing that happens. Just seeing and silence. The silence is always here. We could pay attention to the silence instead of all the thoughts. The thoughts don't have to stop. So Bankai was saying, we just don't have to pay so much attention to them. When we begin to notice how we pay attention to them, 
because they come so loud associated with emotion based on believing the description and perception. When we can notice that and just give the possibility that maybe it's not the way I think, then we can start to notice the space or the silence. We don't have to figure the thoughts out. Just let them run out and tune into the silence. And everything changes. Everything changes. I just want to end with a little bit from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche about thoughts. It is our own mind that can lead us astray into the cycle of existences. Blind to the mind's true nature, we hold fast to our thoughts, which are nothing but manifestations of that true nature. But holding fast to the thoughts freezes awareness into solid concepts such as I and other, desirable and detestable, and plenty of others. This is how we create samsara. But if, instead of letting our thoughts solidify, we recognize their emptiness, then each thought that arises and disappears in the mind renders the realization of emptiness ever clearer. And this is not only are thoughts not a problem, Watching them arise and disappear actually strengthens our recognition of emptiness. All phenomena of samsara and nirvana arise like a rainbow, and like a rainbow they are devoid of any tangible existence. Once you have recognized the true nature of reality, which is both empty and at the same time appears as the phenomenal world, your mind will cease to be under the power of delusion. If you know how to leave your thoughts free to dissolve by themselves as they arise, they will cross your mind as a bird crosses the sky without leaving any trace. So in our practice, we just maintain that state of simplicity. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. That's a bell that means now it's walking time. Okay. Sally has to schedule some interviews tomorrow morning starting at 8. So please check the notice board if you might be scheduled with her for tomorrow. Check it tonight, at least, or tomorrow morning, at least before 8. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.